Tom and Paul today to break through the latest media law headlines. We will be discussing the Corbyn meaning judgment, the Hong Kong sentences, Facebook's data leak, a US Supreme Court hearing on Snapchat, and finally, the Daily Mail's suing Google. Former Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn has lost his appeal against the first instance judgment on a preliminary issue in a libel action against him, brought by the blogger Richard Millett. The Court of Appeal has agreed with the court below that the words complained of conveyed imputations of fact and that they were defamatory at common law. The matter will now continue to trial. The incident arises out of comments made by Mr Corbyn on the Andrew Marr show in September 2018. Mr. Corbyn was asked to respond to a speech he'd made in 2013 about, quote, Zionists. And in his response, he described the disruptive and abusive behaviour of, quote, Zionists that he'd been referring to in the 2013 speech. While Mr. Corbyn did not name these people, the claimant, Mr. Millett, a blogger and commentator interested in Israel and Palestine, is suing on the basis that he was identifiable as one of the Zionists Mr. Corbyn referred to. So there are two main issues here whether the statements were fact and whether they were defamatory, i.e. passing the serious harm threshold, you have to assume that the finding of fact by the Court of Appeal is a pretty good indication of how this defence will run at trial. Do you think a Section 2 truth defence is likely? Um, I think it's entirely possible. I don't know what evidence uh corbyn has um but i should think he may try to run a truth defense if he thinks he can show that millet was as he alleged so disruptive in that meeting that the police wanted to eject him um because we know the police did turn up um on the other hand the chances that millet would bring a claim in circumstances where a truth defence were likely to succeed, uh, I think, are relatively slim. Um, so if there is a defence here, my instinct is it's more likely to be a Section 4 defence uh, for reasonable belief and publication is in the public interest, given the interest in the subject matter surrounding the interview um, uh, that Corbyn was giving at the time. Um, uh and given that he is, in effect, giving a, 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 an account of his recollection of the events, um, the argument, I suspect, will be made that what he has said is broadly accurate and that um, he, if he has exaggerated, it is only because he has misremembered exactly what has happened. Um, and uh, there's a limit to what one can expect a person to recall in an interview five years later when put on the spot on the BBC by an interviewer. Um, now, whether the court will accept that those circumstances can combine to create a situation in which the Section 4 defence succeeds um, is the point that we're going to have to wait and see. Um, but I suspect that's where the most likely defence is going to be. 
Um, certainly there can be no attempt at a comment-based defence now that the Court of Appeal has ruled that these are allegations of fact rather than um, an expression of an opinion. Um, but this never looked to me like an expression of an opinion, so that's uh, not particularly surprising. I want to move on to the Hong Kong sentences, um, because I don't think there's much else to discuss on that before we actually have a judgment after this case goes to trial. Listeners will be aware that we've covered the right to protest a lot in recent newscasts. And in light of that, I thought it seemed appropriate to cover the sentences given to Hong Kong activists for their involvement in pro-democracy and anti-Beijing protests in the summer of 2019. One such activist is the media tycoon Jimmy Lai, who was sentenced to 14 months in prison. Lai's tabloid newspaper, Apple Daily, published a letter sent by him from prison, which read, and I quote, it is our responsibility as journalists to seek justice. As long as we are not blinded by unjust temptations, as long as we do not let evil get its way through us, we are fueling this responsibility. Lai is also joined by barristers and elected legislators in prison, some of them serving sentences at the moment, some of them on suspended sentences. This is a very extreme example of the issues around free speech and the right to protest that we've discussed a lot in in recent podcasts, and I thought maybe you might want to comment on this. China China has a long history of uh, treating protest uh, in a way that I think can be uh, described as uh, heavy-handed. Uh, but China's uh, uh, attitude towards uh, criticisms uh, of itself and of its government have, of course, uh, recently ramped up to an even greater level uh, through the use of uh, what it calls sanctions uh, for sort of uh, misleading uh, anti-Chinese uh, uh, sentiment. And of course, one of the uh, most notable um, uh, events recently was when um, Sir Michael Tuggenhat's son, uh, Tom Tuggenhat, who of course is a Conservative uh, MP, uh, was ostensibly hit by uh, one of these uh, sanctions. Um and uh, of course, we don't know what uh, sanctions uh, they um, they have in place. We're just told that there are there will be sanctions. Uh, this is quite uh, this is quite troubling. Uh, I think it's incredibly troubling for freedom of expression uh, and the opportunity to criticise any government uh, where one feels uh, it is justified and necessary. For my money, one of the challenges that this poses here in the United Kingdom is for our government and the credibility that our government has in speaking out uh, when it comes to violations of the right to protest in other countries, because our own government is currently trying to push through Parliament legislation that will substantially curtail the right to protest, legislation that we've covered uh, in a, a recent edition of, uh, of this very podcast um, in the form of the Police and Crime Bill. Um, and I, I think that having 
that kind of legislation, whether it makes it onto the statute books or not, and I suspect that with the government's majority being what it is, it has every chance of making it onto the statute books. But frankly, even presenting legislation like that in Parliament, putting ministerial weight behind it and saying this is a good thing, it makes it very, very difficult to stand up and say that what China is doing here is objectionable. Um, uh, and, and I think that that really is lamentable, if that's the situation that we've gotten ourselves into as a nation. Both of you have touched on the extraterritoriality element of some of the decisions that China's made in light of protests and criticism of its government, going to sanctions against people outside of its borders and against mm. people who aren't its own citizens. And so I wondered whether there's an international response to breaches of free speech made by a country outside of its own territory. Um, I'm not I'm not aware of uh, any uh, response, although I, that, I think that speaks to my own ignorance. I'm sure there will be a response. This is a clear attack on on free speech, uh, not only of um, uh, criticisms about uh, China by by uh, its own citizens, but this is an attack on uh, free speech in our own country. I mean, I referred momentarily, uh, I referred briefly to the experience of Tom Tuggenhat, uh, MP. I understand that um, Mr. Tuggenhat has subsequently uh, resigned from his position uh, on the select committee uh, as a consequence of these uh, these so-called sanctions that have been applied uh, to him. So this is not just affecting uh, the idea of democracy in China. This is affecting democracy in this country as well. Now, of course, whether um, Mr. Togenhat's actions were uh, of his own volition, uh, whether pressure was put on him by somebody else, we shall never know, I am sure. Um, but it's deeply troubling, nonetheless, that uh, the Chinese government can have uh, this kind of impact. Um, can, can you imagine if... if um, if uh, by speaking out in the way that we are now, that, that uh, sanctions from our own universities were to follow. I think that's a, a nice segue on to actually another point that I want to talk about in this podcast. And that is a hearing that the US Supreme Court has recently heard about the Snapchat, which has led to disciplinary action against a 14-year-old student. So the this is a 14-year-old cheerleader who was suspended from her high school cheerleading team after a post she made criticizing the fact that she hadn't made the varsity team. She dropped the F-bomb reacting to this news. Her lawyers claim that the school violated her freedom of speech as she wasn't on school grounds, it wasn't school hours, and she wasn't wearing any school uniform. This ruling, which we don't have a judgment on at the moment, but we will keep an eye out for and cover in due course, will impact the free speech rights of about 50 million public school children in America. And it's particularly impactful given the timing as remote learning has meant that social media now plays a far greater role in the average child's school day as a means of communication with their peers. So, I mean, I know we've spoken a lot about employee rights on the podcast before and how their free speech factors into out-of-hours communications. And so I wondered, is, is there some pre preliminary thoughts on this? 
I think it's going to be a fascinating thing to see how the conservative justices, of course, now on the major in the majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, deal in their own minds with the clash between, on the one hand, a constitutional right that they claim to cherish above more or less everything else in the First Amendment right to free speech, and at the same time, the traditional conservative dislike of unruly children and people cursing. Um, uh, how this actually plays out in practice will, I think, be, uh, will be fascinating. Uh, and, and fascinating to see how the appointment of the two most recent conservative ju judges um, and, uh, to the Supreme Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, affect the, the direction that the court takes here. Yeah, presumably they'll they'll try and pass it off as uh, fighting words, uh, and therefore an exception, a justifiable exception to the right to free speech. Well, uh, that's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Um, we need to we need to watch out for this uh, judgment, of course, because of the connection with uh, Cohen. Ah, yes, Cohen, the uh, fuck the draft case uh, for anyone who doesn't remember that you can always look it up it's a famous u.s uh free speech case about a individual protesting the draft in the context of the vietnam war uh wearing in public a jacket upon which was emblazoned the words fuck the draft in that case um the right to free speech was upheld um if this pupil's right to express herself in not dissimilar language in respect of uh, what is admittedly a less widely impactful issue, um, then that, that will be in tension with the, uh, the Cohen decision. Perhaps we can just say that for now and then wait to see what the uh, court actually rules yeah it's definitely one to watch i think uh just to close the point it's worth mentioning that the biden administration has come out with a statement on the siding with the school saying that some speech which specifically targets school function warrant discipline even if it occurs off campus so they've made their position clear there. But we will wait and see and, um, of course, bring listeners uh, updates as and when we have a judgment. Moving on, though, to uh, Facebook, because it wouldn't be a newscast if we didn't talk about Facebook at some point. Uh, they are in hot water over a data leak. 530 million Facebook users are being encouraged to take legal action against the tech giants for a leak which Facebook denies ever happened. Um, they say that the data was scraped from publicly available information on the sites, but this information uh, has included a lot of phone numbers um, and I believe even some addresses, so you know, highly sensitive information. If this uh, claim goes ahead, it will be the first mass action suit of its kind. Digital Rights Island is leading the charge and it is confident that if the action is successful it will set a precedent which may open the door to further class action suits down the line um so again this will be something to watch see if it actually goes through see if uh, 
digital rights Ireland can actually get all the claimants together. I think they are saying that each person would be entitled to about 12,000 euros. So that might bring some people forward. Finally, the Daily Mail is suing Google for having too much control over its online advertising and claiming that Google downgrades its links to its stories by favouring other outlets. This whole dispute arose over coverage of the Meghan Markle interview and Piers Morgan's resignation because the Daily Mail had Piers Morgan writing for them at the time and uh, claimed that they weren't getting enough clicks and that was obviously because Google had hijacked their algorithm. So it's alleging that Google punishes publishers if they don't sell enough advertising space in its marketplace and Google has said that this is completely meritless. I love this story. I love this story. I love the idea of the Daily Mail fighting the, you know, the cause of, of the little man uh, who has been treated in this way, uh, this terrible way by a, by a tech giant. giant. Uh, for the selective way uh, that it reports things. And who better to do that, of course, than the Daily Mail? Champion of people. Daily Mail has for years been championing uh, a form of free market economics in which if you do not succeed in selling your product to enough people, it is because your product is not good enough. Um, And uh, at this point, uh, the Daily Mail's lawsuit, which I believe has been filed in New York and is presumably under some antitrust law or other in New York State, um, uh, is it's hilarious, isn't it? Because they are arguing the precise opposite. Our content, they say, is brilliant. Our content is unimpeachably perfect. Who wouldn't want to read it? The only reason we're not getting the Google hits is that we're uh, having Google search results manipulated. Um, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if they're going to be able to prove it's true. They must think that they can do, they can prove it to an extent. Um, but uh, it's going to be fun to watch them try. Yeah. Well, on a, on a similar, on a similar note, uh, we're also told that um, former Daily Mail Supremo, uh, Paul Dacre, is one of two candidates to take over as the chair of Ofcom, with Ofcom being uh, the, um, uh, the body that's going to be responsible for overseeing the online harms. Uh, delivery of the online harms uh, bill. So I wonder if if he does get the job, uh, he will do his old friends uh, a favour by um, uh, pursuing Google uh, over this on the basis of harm to um, uh, to uh, the Daily Mail. Sorry, I did the bunny ears around harm then, but I, I realised that in audio, bunny ears don't really come across uh, unless you say them. Of course, uh, if Dacre does get the job, he'll also be um, taking over around about the time of the launch of GB News as a uh, new uh, mainstream news channel, which is, of course, planned to be a an opinionated news channel that very much will lean to the right of the political spectrum, as does Dacre, of course, for anyone who knows him. Um, and uh, no doubt this is a channel that will face complaints about its coverage 
as do all news channels, but I mean, particularly one that sets out to cause controversy, which I'm absolutely certain that it will. Um, and so uh, it will be, shall we say, interesting to see how Ofcom responds to content-based complaints around uh, GB News if Dacre uh, becomes uh, its new head. A lot of developments to keep our eye on. Mm. I think that pretty much wraps up everything that we wanted to talk about today. So, as ever, thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for joining me. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. And please follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts again soon. Thank you very much. Bye.